This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger job, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. This is the fall line. As in previous episodes in the series, we'll use a mix of redaction and pseudonyms. Please check out those previous episodes for important contextual information. It's been more than 28 years, and Monica and Michael Bennett are still missing. First viewed as runaways, and then finally as endangered missing, the teenager's story, at least as presented in the media, remains frustratingly elusive. We've told you that this case remains open, so we aren't able to answer many of the questions you're probably asking yourself. Like, what leads have the police pursued, or how active has the GBI been, or whether they've managed to track down the people that we haven't, like Monica's boyfriend, for instance. We've reached out to Glenn Academy alumni, but it seems that Monica and Michael stuck tightly to their sibling group and didn't make close ties outside their own home. Students remembered them being gone the following school year. But they disappeared over the summer, so the absence wasn't as striking as it might otherwise have been. There have been a few news articles published on this case, but one is no longer working. The cash version shows the same thing as we see in the others. Some basic information on the case that is fundamentally inconsistent. Even we had a bit of trouble pinning down Monica and Michael's ages ourselves, mostly because Michael had just turned 14 and Monica was going to turn 16, even their family had trouble during casual conversation remembering that detail. In a big family with so many birthdays, well, you get the picture. But other oddities arise too. We've told you that the police report variously lists 8.30 and 8.50 as the time John called Jane to tell her the children were gone. However, one newspaper article and the GBI's website say it was 5 p.m. Other resources, ostensibly based on law enforcement reports, List the time the siblings were seen last as 1 p.m., when John allegedly dropped them off to pack. But we know that is not the case. We know their Aunt Wanda saw them that evening, fed them dinner, and talked to Jane on the phone at sundown, between 8 and 9 p.m. that night, with Monica and Michael in her sightline as she spoke. None of those times can be correct, and does that matter? Maybe. Maybe, if it kept potential witnesses from coming forward if they assumed Monica and Michael were gone hours before they actually were, if they thought any sightings couldn't have been the Bennetts. We've told you the case was reclassified somewhere in the early 2000s and that we don't know precisely why, but we suspect it might have had something to do with Sheila becoming the contact person with Glynn County Police. Between 1989 and then, she heard very little about her brother and sister, and though she became increasingly more convinced that they had not run away, she didn't realize the full extent of the story until she really talked it over with her sisters. They'd all been in Alabama, growing up under the belief that the adults' narrative was all there was. Only when they were older, when they shared their memories, did they see all the cracks. I became the contact person for the case 
when I think when I initially reached out to them and I reached out to them because um, after my sisters and I got together one night and we were kind of going over things or we were just talking about Monica and Michael and and it kind of came up and I started hearing all these things that I had never heard before. And I just wanted to know if the GBI had ever heard this information. And if not, I wanted to give it to them. So I, I want to say that's probably how I became the contact person. We assume that Glynn County contacted the GBI, but we can't verify anything specific with either organization. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Based on our research, we believe the case is not only open, but also active. However, it does leave us with a lot of questions as to who has been questioned, what has been tested, and what has or hasn't been tracked down. On next week's Q&A episode, J. Ryan Green of the podcast Gone at 21 will help us understand what some of these procedures might have been or might be. Ryan is a former law enforcement officer and a current private investigator, and we are so pleased to have him lend his expertise to Monica and Michael's case. He can also give us some insight into law enforcement's 1989-era decision to accept that Monica's molestation accusation was simply a ploy to get more freedom. If you have questions you'd like answered, check the show notes or listen at the end of the episode of the show for contact details. We asked Sheila how she feels about law enforcement's current treatment of Monica and Michael's case. She had this to say. I'm pretty satisfied with the handling of the case um, right now. I I know I went through periods where I we would go through different agents or investigators, and I didn't know it. They would change. Seems like every time I had contact with someone, there was a different investigator. But I'm pretty optimistic about the way things are going right now, I feel like they are doing, you know, as much as they possibly can, considering that it is over a 28 year case. And um, I just appreciate them not, not closing the book on it or not closing it. And just, they still have them listed active. So it kind of gives me um, encouragement to know that they're still out there um, doing a good job. I feel like they're doing a pretty good job. They keep me updated and um, posted whenever I have a question. I can, you know, reach out to them and get a quick response. So I'm pretty um, happy with the way things are going with our with our case. In the time since Monica and Michael were entered in NCMEC's database, the organization has released age progressions of them, and they spotlighted the Bennetts in social media. This attracted the attention of Q, a North Carolina-based nonprofit which travels the country and hosts events to spotlight local missing. In late October, they came to Brunswick, and Monica and Michael were prominently featured in the organized Day of Remembrance. There's been a smattering of media coverage due to that event. But so far, we've been unsuccessful in drumming up more. The more coverage in Georgia and Alabama and Florida, the more likely a potential witness might see it. As we've seen in the cases of high-profile missing persons like Tara Grinstead or Jennifer Kessie, public awareness is key. 
Though Sheila spoke to the GBI in the 2000s, they told her at the time that there simply weren't any leads in the case. That led her to seek outside help. As we mentioned earlier in the season, Sheila once enlisted the aid of a criminology class at Georgia Coastal College, where the undergraduates learned alongside law enforcement professionals who were also earning their degrees. It was a -a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. Sheila got to sit down with a group of people who could offer fresh eyes and takes on the case. She was able to make this happen through a friend of hers who worked at the college and who approached the professor to arrange a meeting and later arranged Sheila's actual visit to the class itself. When we were tracking down Sheila for this podcast, we found this friend first, and she gave us enough info that we were able to locate the criminology course instructor. That was lucky, considering it's essential to discuss this class with the person who taught it, one Lawrence Earl Johnson. Lawrence, or Larry, began his career as a street cop. He also worked in units focused on organized crime and intelligence and even provided security for U.S. presidents. After earning degrees in psychology and criminal justice, he established programs and taught at two colleges, including Georgia Coastal and Brunswick. Since then, Larry has begun another career, this time as an author of thrillers that combine science and conspiracy. We hope that you'll check out his novels, including his newest one, Quantum Fear, available wherever books are sold and linked in our show notes. In this following interview excerpt, Larry discusses the manner in which the class tackled the case and some of the conclusions they drew. He also explains why the class had to cease their investigation into the case even after some of the students had begun to amass information and develop theories. The interview is on the longer side, but it is chock full of information and insight. We think you'll find it useful. Our first question is, how did you become aware of their case, and how did you decide to use it in the class that you were teaching at the time? Well, I first became aware of it uh, because of the nature of the class that I was teaching. It was a criminal investigation class. And in my class, I make it very hands-on, so I set up a variety of crime types of crime scenes around campus and have the students go out there and apply what they learn in the classroom uh, to investigate it, gather evidence, do crime scene searches, and so on. So it's a very visual thing, and uh, I think it was the Georgia Times or the Florida Times Union found out about it and came up and took some photos and did a nice spread in the newspaper about it. And then uh, from that, uh, Sheila Bennett saw that and decided to contact the college, talked to a friend of hers who contacted me and said, I was wondering if she could present her information to my investigation class. And I said, sure. So she came in and talked about it. And then she asked if we would be willing to do some work on the case. And it was cold case. Nobody was working on it. No law enforcement were working on it actively. So I asked the class if they would like to do that. And they said, yeah. So uh, getting an opportunity to work on something was real. And so we said, okay, we'll do that. And uh, Sheila then proceeded to give uh, them all the information that she had amassed and any uh, thoughts or speculation she had about what was what. And then my class is always divided up into groups of four or five teams, and uh, they would work together as a group, and each had a task that they would work on one aspect of the case and gather evidence and put it together and, and bring it in. We talk about it in class. So that's kind of what we did. Can you describe a few of the most remarkable things that came out and were discussed in the class about Michael and Monica's case? Well, um, in a general sense, the the inconsistencies was a theme. Uh, 
uh, I'm always teaching the class to think outside the box. Don't take the evidence that's presented to you as, as all there is. Take a look at it, evaluate each piece of evidence, evaluate the statements, evaluate the information that comes in through a variety of ways of investigating, and then ask yourself, does this make sense? Or is there something that's not consistent? Is this a way a person would behave under normal circumstances? Or would they behave in a different manner? And so when you find something that's not consistent, then try and pull that thread, dig a little deeper. Which piece is wrong, the one you had originally had or the one you just found? And then work your way back from there. So the number of inconsistencies of the stories that were told about this were legion. I mean, there were just so many of them. So I think the, the one that stood out for me the most was the belongings uh, of the of the two uh, siblings. If they were runaways, then they would take their belongings with them, at least things that were important to them. And that didn't seem to be the case. So w- would there be circumstances in which they wouldn't? There are some you could speculate on, but then you're moving into the area of speculation and suppositions and theories, and that's fine. You need to examine all those things, but but uh, until you have some concrete facts, they just kind of stand out as, well, why? The question is why? And that's, there's no answer to that yet. Concrete evidence. Can you describe any of the roadblocks that law enforcement faces in establishing some definitive evidence in this case? Uh, sure, there are many, and certainly with the case of this age. But even even starting with the initial reports, the uh, you do have cases uh, of runaways. There are a lot of runaways. And so the initial officers that would be responding would think of that as a possible likely occurrence. Like we uh, we teach the Occam's razor, which is that the simplest theory is probably the most well, the one that's most likely correct. And that's true, and that's how you triage in medicine and so on. You pick the one that's most likely first. But it's not always the case. And so when you get a lot of cases of runaways, you think when they say runaway and it's youth and it's, you know, from a certain type of family or problem or whatever, then you think, okay, well, maybe that's it. It's probably it, but there may be some more things. So maybe you start with that mindset a little bit. That's the way it's presented to you. And then sometimes you don't think of other possibilities and or you don't have time to, to get into other possibilities. So those are roadblocks. And I think it's the mental, the approach of the, of the crime as presented to you. Secondly, it's a matter of the evidence. Uh, evidence becomes corroded over time. I mean, that's not the right word, but um, for example, eyewitness testimony is unri- unreliable at best under the best circumstances. <laughs> and then over time, people forget. Memories fade. Uh, people move away, uh, hard to get to, uh, or simply don't want to get involved. And so it's hard to, that stuff's pretty, pretty perishable. And you have to evaluate all these things. And the, and the longer it goes on, the more time that goes on, the tougher it is to get something that's concrete. You need to go into court with evidence that is solid. A good eyewitness testimony that's corroborated or uh, and possibly of all of these things together. A solid piece of physical evidence. Fingerprints are good. DNA these days is good. But you may have those things, but if you don't have a suspect, who do you tie it to? There's no big database. There is a fingerprint database, but not a DNA database is not so huge yet. And so it just gets worse and worse and worse the further you go. 
Now, did did your class at some point stop investigating? And if so, why? Yes, uh, we did. And that is was when the uh, GBI and the Glenn County Police, and I believe it was those two agencies, began opening their investigation again or making it active again. In which case, it's an ongoing criminal investigation. And then we needed to stop because uh, anything we would do could, you know, be interfering with their progress. And uh, so we, we're, we're not authorized to do so unless they asked us to and they didn't. Larry, do you have any hope that this case will ever be solved? Well, there's always hope. It may not be a large hope, but there's always hope. And the reason I say that is that in the day, in the current day in technology and science, uh, we have more and more ways to detect things that we couldn't detect before. I mean, we are doing um, facial recognition. There's a lot more videotapes uh, or digital tapes of events. We're covered I think 24-7 sometimes, of cameras that are operating, whether it's outside a liquor store or on a street or whatever it happens to be. So odds are that you're probably going to be on, uh, photographed by a camera uh, several times during a day if you're living in any kind of city. So matter of getting those tapes or where they re-recorded over. Uh, but there are things that, that uh, can come up. piece of evidence that was looked over or overlooked and then shows up somewhere. But I think probably a more likely one, uh, which I would pin more hope on, is that criminals have an inside them of what they've done, and most of the time they got to get it out. And they may be they may be wanting to brag about it because they're very happy or pleased or proud of what they've done and needed to tell somebody because they got away with it. And sometimes it just eats away at them, and there's a guilt sitting back there. And it just festers, kind of like the Telltale Heart and Edgar Allan Poe's story. And it just gets louder and louder, and they can't put it out of their mind. And so they have to get it out and tell somebody about it. And that, that happens a lot, particularly with serial killers and others. they just they got to let the police find them. They put clues out for them to find them. So, so that it would be the, probably the biggest hope that they would sit in a bar someplace and brag about it after they had a few drinks in them, or whoever it would be. And then somebody says, here's about it, and then tell somebody else. And next thing you know, you have a suspect, and maybe you can tie some physical evidence to them or, or however it may go. But that, that would be mostly my best hope. We also managed to track down a few students who'd taken Larry's criminology class. One of them, Felicia, was kind enough to speak with us for the podcast. She told us a little bit about her experience. And when Sheila came in and she told us the story about what happened to her sister and brother, she was, it was just like she was reliving it from when it actually happened because she, she told the story and then she actually, you know, was crying when she told it because it was like a fresh hurt all over again. And I remember we had started writing a bunch of questions down to kind of figure out, could this have happened or could that have happened? Could they have run away? But and after we heard the story, a lot of the questions did not apply. So after she told us what happened, that her stepfather was the last one to see them, then I know I figured that he was the one that could answer all the questions. He knew what happened to her. And at the time, we were 
very interested in this case, but we had to stop because someone that was investigating a cold case from another agency, they got in touch with Mr. Johnson's because we actually made the news. And so they asked him to stop the investigation because they were actually investigating it. And we did stop because we did not want to cause any uh, roadblocks in their investigation. Any leads they may have had, we didn't want to interfere with that. So we did stop and we went no further with it. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Something has bothered us since we first began to investigate Monica and Michael's case. Why did law enforcement ask the class to stop? If they'd begun to uncover leads, that's one thing. But had they? And if so, what did law enforcement do or not do with this information? We've heard about some of the student theories which ran the gamut, and most of which we've discussed in the podcast. But they also focused on what might have become of Monica and Michael if they had indeed been the victims of foul play. It seems that some of the students theorize that the Bennetts might have been hidden away in a body of water. There are so many in Brunswick, and depending on what theory you hold to, between there and Alabama, or even Miami. Others wanted to know more about the construction site across from the hospital, the one where John had been working until suddenly he wasn't. Still others wanted to question Monica's boyfriend, or look into the possible whereabouts of the apparently missing family car, or search for similar cases in neighboring cities and counties. They weren't able to do any of these things, but their observations, based on as much evidence as was available at the time, are worth further exploration. Let's hope that's happening. There's no clear way to end the story of Monica and Michael Bennett because there are so many ways it might have gone, disappearing of their own volition or against their will in a hundred directions. But based on what we've learned in the past three months, it's logical to cross all but a few off the list. As each year passes, finding living people gets easier. Technology is refined and polished until every move we make casts a digital shadow, but it remains difficult as ever to find those who are deceased. Often, when victims are located, it can take decades to match a report to these remains, something that surprises the general public who assume DNA testing is the default. It's not. DNA tests are expensive and time-consuming, and often aren't conducted unless there's good reason to do so. There is an unidentified Georgia Doe who some felt might be Monica, but law enforcement has ruled that possibility out. So, what else? In a 2007 Brunswick News article that covered the cases of Brunswick missing, including Monica and Michael, the author cited a GBI officer, John Bankhead, as saying, quote, Missing persons cases remain open until they are solved. Generally, we'll investigate a case until all the leads run out. But until new information or new tips come in, there's really nothing else we can do, end quote. 
Monica and Michael's family, their sisters, their grandmother, their aunt, have shared everything that they can remember with law enforcement. But there has got to be more out there. John and Jane aren't talking about the case and reportedly haven't shown interest in seeing it solved, nor actively pursued answers in their children's disappearance. How are 28-year-old cases ever solved? The revisiting of evidence by law enforcement, new breakthroughs in testing, but as the GBI stressed in that article, new tips are paramount. We asked Sheila to reflect on the case as it stands and whether she feels there will be a resolution for Monica and Michael. I mean, I've always had hope. Uh, I have faith in God that anything that's done in the dark will be brought to light. If not in this time, you know, when he chooses to show it for what it is. But um, I've always had some glimmer of hope that there will be resolution or if, you know, maybe God will let convict anybody who knows anything to just come and tell what they know. They don't realize that any small bit of information, whether they feel like it's important or not, it, it probably will be helpful. You just never know unless you come forward and say something. I just hope that there, if there is anyone listening, anyone who has ever had any contact with Monica or Michael directly or indirectly, or if they know someone who has had contact with uh, Monica or Michael, any story, any little pieces, as small or irrelevant as you may think it is, if you know anything to just reach out and come forward because you never know that may be that piece of the puzzle that we have been missing. And um, I just, I think that it's finally time to have closure on this. Um, so we can, you know, put it into this, to this, um, Lifelong question. It's, I, I say lifelong because, you know, I'm thinking about when my, my first son was born and he's 28. So it's been a long time. I think it's time for closure. And I think my family would agree and say the same thing. We just want closure as any family would. And you never know if they're still out there. I just want them to hear my voice and know that I have never, I've never stopped looking for you. And that I love them. And that's it. That's all I have to say. Last season, we briefly touched on a concept that's worth echoing here. These cases from the fall lines of Georgia's margins are, in their own way, love stories. They're undercovered in the media or not covered at all, often swept aside in a tide of cases that are easier to solve based on a thousand societal factors that hardly need explaining. The missing you hear about on shows like this one are only on the fringes of the public consciousness. That the stories have made it that far 
even under Reddit, social media, and a podcast or two, is a testament to how hard the families of the missing and the murdered have pushed. Nearly every true crime fan, every web sleuth, has imagined solving a case. We might swoop in, find a clue, make a connection. But there is real work to do, and we can do it, and we can help. Share the stories of Monica and Michael and every other lost child, most especially those forgotten because of race or sexuality, gender identity, or because their families didn't have the money it took to enter the public imagination. Contact media, local to Brunswick and national, and let them know about Monica and Michael's case. You did that with the Millbrook twins, and so much has happened in a few months. Perhaps you can give other families the same kind of encouragement and even hope. Monica Renita and Michael Anthony Bennett were 15 and 14 at the time of their disappearance. Their last known clothing is unknown. Despite suggestions otherwise, there's no proof that they had any belongings with them or plans to disappear. The only distinct physical characteristics on their knick-knack missing persons posters are Monica's pierced ears and a scar on Michael's knee. The paragraph description of the day of their disappearance, rife with inconsistencies, should not and will not be the sum total of their story. We've told you what we can about Monica and Michael, but at most this has been a character sketch of two teenagers struggling through a frightening and tumultuous summer. It's all it can be without more attention, more exposure, and more community awareness. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us over on Patreon. All our Patreon earnings fund the Millbrook Twins billboard and go to the Therapy Fund for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us to continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We've also added occasional live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy, starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we're beginning that feed as well, so you can have an alternative way to contribute. Again, 100% of these funds go to support the Billboard and Therapy Fund. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd, Liz Lipka, and Sarah Turney. Currently, our monthly donation is going to Private Investigations for the Missing. Please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the services of PIs. Mm-hmm.